Well, praise the Lord. Amen? Amen. Praise his holy name for the privilege of coming together, opening up his word, singing songs of praise to his name, to his son, for his gospel and his word, even with the ceiling the way it is. That's okay. Now, if you start to see some smoke coming coming out of these lights here, you just got to go back there and shut the light switch off. We'll keep moving, but you guys got to be my eyes up here. All right, let's continue our worship. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 25. Thank you, music team, Tim, for leading us in musical worship. It was truly a joy to praise his name together. All right, we're in Acts 25. I'm going to only read the first three verses. We'll go through the first 12 together. Ah, let's just read all 12. Uh, Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. This is God's word, Acts 25, 1 through 12. Festus then, having arrived in the province after three days, went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul, and they were pleading with him, requesting a favor against Paul that he might have him brought to Jerusalem while they set an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus then answered that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea, and that he himself was about to leave shortly. Therefore, he said, let the influential men among you go down there with me. If there is anything wrong with the man, let them accuse him. And after he had spent not more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea. On the next day, he took his seat on the judgment seat and ordered Paul to be brought. And after Paul arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him which they could not prove. While Paul said in his own defense, I have committed no sin, either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem to be tried before me on these matters? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of these things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. And when Festus had conferred with his council, he said, You have appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar you shall go. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be glorified in our time together, that your name would be magnified, exalted, praised. You alone are worthy of our praise, and it's a delight to give it to you, Lord. So I pray that you would change all of our hearts through this text. By your grace and for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, as you can see, we again have the tremendous privilege of following the narrative and testimony of the Apostle Paul, a prisoner for Christ, no longer a freed man able to travel about the Roman provinces proclaiming the good news of the gospel of grace, but now confined to a Roman jail cell in Caesarea patiently awaiting the next events in his life, knowing full well that he will make it to Rome one day, just as the Lord promised. If we go back to our time last week and Chris taking us through Paul standing before Felix, the governor, we can remember Luke ended this section by saying that Paul was kept in prison for two years 
before the events of our text uh, this morning took place here. So two whole years, he's sitting in this jail cell, this holding cell, all because, as Luke put it, Felix, wishing to do the Jews a favor, left Paul imprisoned. This is really remarkable when you think about it. Consider your life over the past two years. Think about all that has transpired in your life over these past 24 months. Think about where you were two years ago. Maybe some big changes have taken place. Maybe you got married. Maybe you had a baby. You got a different job. You graduated, relocated. Or maybe you lost a loved one or a friend. Lost a close one. Someone closest to you. Maybe there haven't been any huge changes at all. Either way, I want you to think about where you were in this life two years ago. Okay. Now imagine that you've been in the Denver County Jail that whole time. Okay. And that you were sent there as one who was not found guilty of any formal crime. You were completely innocent and blameless from a legal standpoint, and everyone knew it. Not to mention you had a completely clear conscience before your Lord. Can you imagine this? Well, I think you should imagine this. In fact, I think this is a perfect time for you to imagine this, Uh, being a prisoner for Christ, being persecuted for Christ's sake, oppressed, afflicted, reviled, hated for Christ's sake. I mean, I'm no prophet here, but it seems to me that this world, this nation, this state, this city, and our neighbors grow increasingly hostile to that which God considers good and right and pure and holy. Oh yeah, this is a great time to imagine it. Here's Paul. He's sitting in the Caesarean jail cell. He's stowed away all but forgotten because he was a key witness to the light which had come into the world. A key witness of the one who said, men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds are evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds be exposed. Jesus who said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Paul was one of those followers. He was one who had the light of life. So they thought, let's put him in a place where he won't be able to shine and illuminate the darkness of our lives, right? And this isn't speculation. This is what Luke says, right? Didn't he? Acts 24, verse 25. But as Paul was discussing righteousness and self-control, And the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and answered, go away for the present. When I find time, I will call for you. And then bam, just like that, two years in the very next verse. In the same way, this evil world system, this corrupted and cursed society, this satanic culture, they don't want to hear about righteousness. They don't want to hear about self-control or the judgment of their creator, right? In fact, that's the last thing they want to hear about. And so I think it's a real possibility, even in these next five to ten years, maybe sooner, that some here in this room may experience the very same treatment as Paul and those in the early church. If, that is, like Paul, we remain faithful to the Lord and his word. If, that is, we don't compromise and acquiesce to a society which is so clearly under the judgment of God. If, that is, we continue to preach the truth in love 
that never cease to proclaim the only remedy, the only cure, and the only salvation available to sinful men and women, which is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we do this boldly and uncompromisingly, then we ought to expect to be persecuted. And that's what we're going to consider together this morning, okay? Again, now's the time to ask, while you're safe, while we're here, what you'll do when and if this moment comes in your life. Now's the time. More on that in a moment. Let's dive into this text here as we see again how it wasn't just the corrupt Roman officials who were guilty of persecuting Paul, but really the most relentless attacks came from the so-called leaders of God's chosen people of Israel. Felix is out. He's removed by the emperor. Portius Festus, the new governor of Judea, he's in. Verse 1. Festus then, having arrived in the province after three days, went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. So his first duty as the new governor is to go to the hot spot of his jurisdiction, which is the city of David. He went up, the text says. He ascended up to Jerusalem. You're always going up to and down from Jerusalem as the city is elevated here. Well, it's clear from the text that the Jews were greatly anticipating Festus' arrival. Why? They wanted to make their demands known to this new governor here. The old guy, he was a pushover, but he was, he was way too corrupt. Even for Rome, he was too corrupt. How would this new guy fare? Festus rides into town. He's greeted by this welcoming party, and guess what they bring up first? Guess whose name pops up from the first mention? This guy doesn't even get one foot off the bus without hearing about the great pest of the Jewish nation and the Roman Empire. And the chief priests, the leading men of the Jews, brought charges against Paul. They were pleading with Festus, requesting a favor against Paul, that he might have him brought to Jerusalem while they set an ambush to kill him on the way. I mean, you want to talk about a bunch of stalkers here, fanatics, fanatics. This is two years later. These men were totally obsessed with, continually preoccupied with thoughts of the Apostle Paul. He lived, as they say, rent-free in their heads. It's a bit creepy if you think about it. Uh, They were completely consumed with Paul's existence. You may have had an ex-girlfriend or an ex-boyfriend like this. Well, these guys were worse than any clingy ex because they weren't driven by infatuation or thoughts of what could have been. They were driven by sheer hatred and animosity, utter contempt and disdain for Paul. The old adage, out of sight, out of mind, did not apply with these leading men. It's been 24 months. This case is as fresh on their minds as if it happened yesterday. They were obsessed with Paul. They were obsessed. Luke says they were pleading with Festus. They were urging him. The the verb used there denotes a continued pleading. They were persistently pleading their case, and they were doing so with a fervent rage and a lust for revenge. One preacher said, hatred is a strong motivating force. As these men clearly demonstrate here, their enmity is still at full throttle, so to speak. The proverb is true of them, which says, for they cannot sleep unless they do evil. They are robbed of sleep unless they make someone stumble. Well, these guys had insomnia for two years. And think of the spiritual condition of these guys, okay? So 
filled with bitterness and, and malice toward Paul. There's no way that they had hearts capable of being receptive to the message that he was proclaiming here, even though it meant eternal reconciliation to the God they claimed to be serving and worshiping. Oh, no, they had defiled consciences. They had seared consciences. And they loathed Paul, all because he exposed their darkness by the proclamation of divine truth. It's very sad. Let me just ask you this morning. Are you harboring any resentment toward anyone in your life? Are you carrying around the weight of bitterness, animosity, hatred in your heart against somebody in this life? Maybe it's someone you haven't uh, seen or spoken with in many years, decades. Let me just say, it'll kill you. It'll touch every area of your life, and it will poison every area of your life. The author of Hebrews says, The root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many can be defiled. Carrying bitterness around will affect your relationship with the Lord, your wife or your husband, your kids, friendships, the church, all areas of life, all while the person that you're hostile to may not even know you have something against them. Right? I would implore you to confess it. Rid yourself of this burden. Surrender it. Ask the Lord to take it from you. Seek reconciliation. Have a, a clear conscience and a soft, humble, submissive heart toward the Lord and his will for your life. These guys, they were the opposite, right? They, they were haughty. They were obstinate. They were arrogant. Two years later, they still had this unsatiated bloodlust for the apostle Paul here. And Luke clearly reveals their intentions in verse 3. Look at that. Um, their intentions were not to defend the honor of their God or his people or the temple or Moses, not to hold an actual fair trial, not to, as the leaders of Israel, make absolutely sure that what they were doing was in accordance with the will of their Lord. Oh, no, they had a plan. Just like the 40 guys three years earlier, they wanted to ambush Paul. They wanted to murder Paul. The religious leaders. You know, when Luke uses that, that word ambush there or lying in wait, He's talking about a, a band of men willing to kill Paul at any cost, whether that meant sacrificing their own lives or even the lives of the guards who would have surely been protecting him, uh, proving that they were the real threat to Rome, right? In their anger and disdain for Paul and his proclamation of the risen Lord Jesus, they were hell-bent on taking his life. They were united in their efforts to remove the light that shone upon their cold, dead hearts. But this should come as absolutely no surprise to any true Christian in here, should it? Again, this is time to think. This is the perfect time to think about your place in a world that hates you. Or that should hate you if you're truly in Christ. Jesus said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Let me just ask, are you hated by this world, my friends? Are you hated by this world? Jesus, uh, John writes, do not marvel, brothers, if the world hates you. Why? Why would they hate us? Well, he talks about Cain killing Abel. He says, Cain, who was of the evil one, slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil, 
and his brother's deeds were righteous. It's the same way with this world. They hate the followers of the light because they hate the light himself. So I'd ask again, does anyone in this world know that you're a follower of the light that has come into the world? Do they know? Do people know that you've been chosen out of the world? Do people view you as righteous and not in a self-righteous way or a sanctimonious way, but truly righteous, slaves of righteousness, ultimately, because you have Christ's righteousness imputed to your account? Do they know? One theologian said, Christians are persecuted for the sake of righteousness because of their loyalty to Christ. Real loyalty to him creates friction in the hearts of those who pay him only lip service. Loyalty arouses their consciences and leaves them with only two alternatives, follow Christ or silence him. Often their only way of silencing Christ is by silencing his servants. Persecution in subtle or less subtle forms is the result. He says, we have already seen that the gospel produces a lifestyle characterized by righteousness. In practice, that means absolute integrity, whether at home, in the workplace, or even at play. But such integrity challenges the moral indifference of the world, not least in our own age. This guy's still alive, by the way. Not to do the things that everybody does stirs the world's sleepy conscience. More than that, it irritates it because, and, and causes annoyance and even anger. I'll ask you again. Does your life annoy or anger those around you? That doesn't mean we, all, we go all Westboro Baptist and uh, try to provoke anger out of the world so that we can appear godly and set apart. Oh no, the people of that cult are far from being regenerate men and women. No, no, I'm talking about living in a world that hates you even though you try to live peaceably among all men. Meaning, we're not going around poking people's eyes with a stick saying God hates fags or God hates soldiers. That's demonic. But we are absolutely uncompromising in our affiliation with and our loyalty to Christ and his word whether people like it or not. Is that true of you? If so, then you can expect persecution. You can expect suffering, affliction, hostility. You can expect people to hate you. You can expect people to revile you. Jesus said it himself when he preached the greatest sermon in the history of the world. Matthew 5-7, through seven, the Sermon on the Mount, as he spoke of the foundational characteristics, the fundamental characteristics of all true believers in Christ. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy, their total inability, their absolute impotence to do anything good of anything of any real eternal value, including choose to follow God in their own strength and their own natural sinful condition, and they recognize their desperate need for deliverance, their desperate need for a Savior, those who are completely and totally dependent upon God and God alone to do a miraculous work of regeneration in our wretched, cold, sinful hearts. Does this describe you? Are you poor in spirit? Well, then you are truly blessed, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Not that we have some sort of Eeyore complex and we're walking around all day, moping around. Oh, I'm so sad. Oh, my God. Oh, no, 
that we mourn over our sin. We mourn over that which grieves our God. Blessed or happy are you, for you will be comforted. Blessed are the lowly or the meek, those who have a power that's under control, like Christ did, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Do you love the Lord? Do you love his word? Do you love his people? Do you love his gospel? Do you long for more of him? Well, then you are blessed. Why? You will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful. They shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And the final foundational characteristic of a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and right where we find Paul in Acts 25, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you, when they insult you, when they persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice! And be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice. Be glad, happy, satisfied, spiritually prosperous, independent of one's circumstances in life, even in times of persecution. That's right. In Luke chapter 6, he says, uh, be glad in that day. Leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. Their fathers were doing the same things to the prophets. Now, nobody likes to be hated, do they? Unless you're some kind of masochist. Is that how you say that? Masochist? I just looked it up. Masochist? Or weirdo. I'll say weirdo. Nobody likes to be insulted, right? Nobody likes to be scorned, falsely accused, slandered, reviled. Nobody likes to have their character attacked. Yet, Jesus says this is exactly what will happen to those who are his. Not only that, but he says we ought to rejoice when the time comes. We ought to be glad. Not just on the surface, but deep down, a frame of mind, a settled position in the depths of our heart. We should be glad and leap for joy. Why? Because our reward is great in heaven. Eternal reward await, uh, rewards await us, and we should rejoice because this is always the way it's been for God's people in this world. The prophets, the saints of old, and if it was true of them, and if it was true of the early apostles and disciples in the early church, and should it become true of us, well, we can have peace knowing that we're in good company, right? And Paul knew this better than anybody. He told Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Well, here in Acts 25, really ever since he arrived in Jerusalem three years earlier in Acts 21, in fact, ever since he snuck out of that Damascus window in that basket some 20 years ago, he's been continually persecuted, reviled, slandered, falsely accused, and hated for Christ's namesake. And here he is again with these obsessed religious leaders. And yet, watch how he responds, okay? How did Paul rejoice when he was reviled? Did he, how did he get out of this situation? How did he manage to get out of the clutches of these bloodthirsty, angry Jewish men. Did he panic? 
Did he cry? Good timing, Joaquin. Did he fret? Did he, did he compromise to save his life? Did he renounce his Lord, perhaps? Well, let's keep reading. Again, the Jews says, ah, bring him. They say, bring him to Jerusalem. We'll try him here. But verse 4, Festus then answered that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea, that he, he himself was about to leave shortly. Therefore, he said, let the influential men among you go down there with me. If there's anything wrong about the man, let them, let them accuse him. Last time it took 470 men to get Paul from Jerusalem to Caesarea. So he says, why don't you come back to, with me? Just take a small group of you guys. Verse 6, after he had spent not more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea, and on the next day he took his seat on the judgment seat and ordered Paul to be brought. Okay, so we're back in Caesarea here. The influential men, they come down with him. Festus takes his place on the judgment seat, known as the Bema seat. You may have heard of it. An elevated platform where uh, judgments, types of settle, uh, terms of settlements and sentences were made. We're going to elaborate more on the Bema seat next week, in the next two weeks, actually, Lord willing. But for now, just know that Festus, much like Pilate, who judged our Lord some 30 years before, now takes his seat on the Bema seat, the judgment seat, and calls for Paul. And after two years, they bring him out to stand trial. And I can only imagine, as he comes out of his cell, he steps out into the daylight, and he's standing before a new governor only to look over and see these guys, these same guys that he stood before in Jerusalem. He had to be thinking, oh, my word. You've got to be kidding me. These guys are obsessed. Get a life. Verse 7, after Paul arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges, weighty matters against him, which they could not prove. They couldn't prove them. You know, this text reminds me of uh, the prophetic words of Psalm 22. As God's sacrificial lamb, his completely innocent, sinless Christ hung upon the cross while many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a lion that tears and roars. Here are these Jews who surrounded Paul like the rabid dogs they were, frothing at the mouth, just foaming at the mouth, longing to tear him limb from limb. They couldn't wait. But look at verse 8. He remains cool. He remains calm and collected. As he says in his own defense, I have committed no sin, either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. Again, we've seen this the past three chapters. He says, come on. These are baseless accusations. Nobody's been able to prove any of them. Even with their false testimonies, their false witnesses, the truth is just not on their side. But now we see this conflicted governor, right? The new guy who wanted to appease the Jews, as his predecessor tried to do, but failed. As we learned last week, Felix was truly awful. So much so that his brother Pallas had to intervene in his sentencing by Rome for, among other things, taking bribes, dealing harshly with his own people, and possibly even conspiring to have a high priest of Israel assassinated, which obviously would have caused a revolt, right? So the Jews clearly had some sway with Caesar if Felix was out. But now Festus comes in, and again, he's got to make him happy so he can keep his place as ruler, so he can save his own skin. So look what he does in verse 9. 
Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, are you, not, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and be tried before me on these matters? You know, Paul, maybe it's not such a bad idea you go down there with me. You can clear the, your name right. You, you can clear your name there. You know, you can, uh, I'll help you out. Just come down there with me. All the while he's looking at the Jews going, eh? Right? You see, darkness typically has no problem colluding with darkness. Okay? They have no problem colluding with each other if the common goal is to extinguish the light. And that's important, too, if we're going to sit here and remember uh, or think about the day when we might face persecution, right? Darkness has no problem colluding with darkness. It reminds me of how the Sanhedrin had swayed Pilate to condemn Jesus, to flog him, to scourge him, to hang him on a Roman cross, though Pilate himself said repeatedly, nothing deserving death has been done by this man. I find no guilt in him. Then why is he standing here beaten and bloody before everyone? Because they colluded together. The, the two forces worked together to bring it to pass. Same with Pilate and Herod, who became great friends that day as they paraded the beaten and bloodied Jesus from building to building. Same thing could very well happen today, and does. Government officials conspiring with those in the secular, private sector, corporations, social media, cancel culture, sniff out those bigoted Christians, those bigoted Christ followers, bring them down, right? Even, even like, like Paul like in Paul's case, the false religions, I wouldn't be surprised to see what we see in so many places around the world, uh, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, working side by side with secular pagan administrations to attack their Christian population. That's, that's right. Something to think about. You know. Here in Acts 25, uh, Portius Festus is willing to do the Jews a favor, but Paul is a Roman citizen. So he's conflicted here. What should he do? Well, I can only imagine he breathed a huge sigh of relief uh, at what happened next. Look at verse 10. Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. Paul knew what Festus was up to. And Festus knew Paul knew what Festus was up to. And the Jews knew, Festus knew, that Paul knew what Festus was up to as well. Everybody knew what was going on here. So, in verse 11, Paul does something really remarkable. Don't miss this. In it, we see a wonderful display of a peace. A peace that surpasses all understanding. With all the assurance and confidence of a blessed man who knows he is destined for the kingdom of heaven, he says, if then... I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything wor- have not committed anything worthy of death. Excuse me. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true of which they, these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. He says, "You know, I'm not afraid to die." If you find anything worthy in me, worthy of death, or anything in me worthy of death, I'm not going to fight it. You can have at me. But you better be sure the evidence that you have is concrete, or you'll be guilty of condemning an innocent Roman citizen. Then it's your tail on the line. 
Ultimately, uh, Paul says, you know what, forget it. I'm going above you. I want to go to Caesar, he says. Now, this gets really, really interesting when we remember who Caesar was at this time. Any guesses? Nero. You got it. One of the worst human beings in all of history, the man who killed his own mother and his 14-year-old brother because he considered them a threat to his position of power, the man who kicked his pregnant wife to death and proceeded to marry a man who looked just like her, the man who frequently used little boys and little girls for his sexual gratification who would have them tied to stakes so he could dress up like an animal, jump on them, and pretend to eat them. The man who persecuted Christians with delight as he had them thrown to the dogs, nailed to crosses, and as we've all heard, dipped in oil and wax to set ablaze and illuminate his gardens at night. And all of a sudden, Paul is appealing to this guy? What in the world is he thinking? Well, a couple things are important here, okay? First of all, this was about A.D. 59. Even though this was the same year that Nero killed his own mother, he was actually a decent emperor at that time. It wasn't until about five years later... (laughs) Give the guy credit where credit is due. (laughs) It wasn't until about five years later when he started to become insanely paranoid, ferociously deviant, a great persecutor of the church. We've all read about Nero... At this time, he was doing some good things, though. He was respected by many, even in Rome. They ended up hating him. He had one of his guards kill him because everybody was going to come in and kill him if, if it didn't happen first. So that's the first thing. Second thing, we can't forget Paul had a, a desire to go to Rome. And he knew good and well that Festus could have easily persu- been persuaded by these Jews to toss him back in prison and throw away the key. So he had to take his shot, Right? In fact, the last chapter of Acts, we'll see him tell some of the leading Jews in Jerusalem, I was forced to appeal to Caesar. I was forced to do it. Not that I had any accusation against my nation. He knew full well a Roman judge could not move a case to another, uh, another area without the consent of the accused. And Paul said, no, that's not going to happen. I, I will not go to Jerusalem. He claimed the right of every Roman citizen he appealed to Caesar, which obviously came as a huge relief to Portius Festus, right? Verse 12, then Festus had conferred with his council. He answered, you have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. Thank you. Before that happens, however, we see Paul standing before another ruler who makes his way into town, a king. We'll see this next week. King Agrippa, along with his sister wife, Bernice, We'll hear Paul's testimony and will again determine that he has not done anything worthy of death or imprisonment. That, in fact, he could have been set free had he not appealed to Caesar, but he did. And again, Lord willing, that's what we'll see over the next couple weeks. For now, I want to go back to what we said at first, okay? Did you picture yourself in that cell? Did you think of these past two years? Have you thought about the next two years, what they might look like for your life as a Christian here in this world? As you go about your days as light to a dark world, as salt to a decaying and corroding society, have you thought about that moment when you might find yourself standing before corrupt judges and governors and kings? 
Again, I don't think these times are too far off for us. We know that things will keep going from bad to worse, especially at the end of the age. In fact, Paul says that very same thing to Timothy. Right after he says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He says, Evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Would you say that's true of our, the people in our culture, culture today? Would you say that's true? Would you say that things are going from good to better or bad to worse? That's right. It's not as bad as it could be, obviously. But I think we'd be ignorant to believe it's always going to be like this, even this morning, even with our leaky ceiling, that we'll always have these freedoms, that we'll always be able to come together and enjoy this privilege of opening up God's word like this, that we sing doctrinally sound, theological rich hymns like we do, and we continue to preach the gospel that we preach. So, what do we do should this time come? What do we do when things begin to heat up a bit? How do we rejoice when we are reviled? Well, I think the first thing we do is keep reading. Again, Timothy, evil men will go from bad to worse, but you... Continue in the things that you learned and became convinced of, knowing from whom you learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. We continue on, like Paul, we continue on in the things we've learned. We've continue on in what we've been taught in the Holy and inspired scriptures, the sacred writings, not in human philosophy or humanistic reasoning. But we continue in the scriptures, the very place where the sovereign God of all creation has determined to reveal himself and his will to you. You have to read it. Paul would go on in the very next words to Timothy to say that all scripture is God-breathed. We, we hear the God-breathed word. We know the God-breathed word, and we let the God-breathed word direct our paths in this life. We long for the word. We, we hunger and thirst for the word. We stand firm on the promises of the word, which says we will be persecuted. We will be hated. We will be reviled. But because of what's been done for us through Christ, we can not fear but rejoice when these things become a reality in our life. Right? We look, we look to the promises of his word. And as I was doing this study of the uh, revilement and the, and the suffering experienced by the Christian and the, the oppression that's experienced by faithful believers in the past, I noticed that several familiar, familiar references kept appearing in, in one letter in particular. In the inspired writings of Simon Peter, one of the shorter books of the New Testament, Peter was another apostle who had suffered for Christ's namesake. As, his, as tradition would have it, he was crucified upside down, fulfilling the words of his Lord. Truly, truly, I say to you, Peter, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wish, but when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands, someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. John says, this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. Yeah, Peter knew a thing or two about suffering for the name. And 
I'll just tell you, I was blown away with how much he referenced suffering in his first epistle. So much so that I was compelled to make another somewhat corny acronym. If you look on the back of your outlines, you can see it there. And I apologize if the cheesiness is too much to bear. But look how incredible all these references are in Peter's first epistle alone. You can go ahead and turn there if you want. First Peter. You should turn there if you're able, if you have a Bible. Yeah, First Peter 1. Note the consecutive references to the suffering in chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. God does not want you to be unprepared, my brothers and sisters. He has given you this in one letter as a gift, a gift to you, should this come in your life. A roadmap, a prescription for how to suffer well. The formula for how to rejoice, be glad, leap for joy when you are reviled, insulted, persecuted falsely for his namesake. You ready for this? He opens his letter. Okay, 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again. Uh Uh-oh. Caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, unfading, having been kept in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 6, the proof. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, suffering and persecution are a part of the deal for the believer. You will be persecuted. You will suffer. You will be hated. You will be maligned. You will be slandered. You will be reviled. You you will have trials, Christian. Various trials. But rejoice. Because it only proves that you belong to Him. Same thing as in the Beatitudes. It's who we are, and it's what we're called to face. But rejoice, but it could... It only proves that we are his. Go to chapter 2. He said the very same thing. Verse 21. Here's the example. For to this you have been called. To what, Peter? What have we been called to? Well, to suffer unjustly. For to this you have been called, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an, an example that you should follow in his steps, who did no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, who... Being reviled was not reviling in return. While suffering, he was uttering no threats, kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. A slave is not greater than his master, right? If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Again, why would we think that we get off any easier than our Lord? Physically speaking. He never sinned. We were all conceived and born in sin, inheriting the original sin of Adam. And then, if that's not bad enough, we went on to willingly and knowingly transgress the law of God. Why should we get off any easier? Paul didn't. Peter sure didn't either, did he? And why should we? 
What, because we're middle-class Americans? <laughs> Give me a break. When you are persecuted, remember the example that was put forth by your Lord and rejoice that you are counted worthy to suffer for the name. He then goes on in chapter 3. Again, God gave this to us as a gift to be prepared when our time of suffering comes. We'd be foolish to neglect it. Verse 14, chapter 3, the triumph. Peter says, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Is this not countercultural? Even in many mainline Protestant evangelical churches, this is the real hashtag blessed. Not that you just get your pumpkin spice latte and we're able to sit on it on your back porch and take a selfie during devotional time, right? <laughs> but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, then you are blessed. That's the blessing of Christ. And do not fear their fear, he says in verse 14. I love that. Do not be troubled. Don't be afraid of them. Don't be and afraid of their intimidation tactics. You stand strong, Christian. You have the truth of the living God on your side and the Spirit who will give you just the right words at just the right time. So do not fear their fear, he says. Do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always be being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is within you. Yet, with gentleness and fear, that's a reverent fear, by the way, having a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. Always be ready to make a defense for the hope that is within you. What is the hope? The hope of the reconciliation to a holy God, not through your own works, but only through the sacrificial death Subsequent, triumphant resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead who conquered death himself and secured new life, eternal life for all who would believe in him and call upon his name alone for salvation. And on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. We know this because he was then raised from the dead. He appeared to many witnesses before ascending back up into heaven to the taking his seat on the throne at the right hand of the Father on high from where he would reign triumphantly and victoriously in the hearts of all who belong to him, of all those who now share in the hope of the resurrection for which Paul was on trial. And he is coming again to gather those who belong to him. Rejoice this morning, my brothers and sisters, to be counted among them. Rejoice in the triumph of Christ. And again, Peter will say, just a chapter later, chapter 4, verse 12. This is the exaltation. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Don't be surprised. Don't be alarmed. He told you it would, it would happen. Don't be shocked when it comes. Be ready. Be prepared. Remain steadfast. And, verse 13, to the degree... To the degree you are sharing in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. 
This is what Jesus meant when he said, Blessed are you when men hate you and exclude you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. Be glad in that day. Leap for joy in that day. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. Rejoice with the eager anticipation of his revelation. In other words, look forward to what is to come. Forget the temporal. Do not love this world. Why? This world ain't worth loving. Don't don't place all your focus and give all your attention to this life, this vapor of a life. Rather, look forward to the life to come. Eternal life with Christ in glory. Eternal glory, which Peter closes his letter with. Oh, what better encouragement to the weary soul. What better consolation for the man or woman who is hated, reviled by this world, than to look forward to life in the next. 1 Peter 5.10, the restoration. Children, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, strengthen, confirm, and ground you. To him be might forever and ever. Amen. That day when he will make every wrong right, when he will restore every loss, he will heal every sickness, he will remove every affliction, he will wipe away every tear, When he promises you, when he promises you right here in black and white to strengthen and confirm you, to ground you, establish you, settle you. Brothers and sisters, we have an eternal glory to look forward to, don't we? An eternal glory. Remember that when they revile you. Your suffering will not last. Paul said, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. They're not even worthy to be compared. Knowing this, we can all suffer well when the time comes. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's have... Tim and the music team come up, lead us in musical worship. We did it without any smoke. Praise the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for your word, which is sufficient. Everything that we need in this life as we navigate our lives as pilgrims, aliens, strangers in this land. This is not our home. Thank God. We praise you for that. We praise you that you have delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us into the light, the kingdom of your beloved son. We love you. We love your son. We love your gospel. We love your word. And we give you all glory in Jesus' name. Amen.